totally shocking how when people look at themselves in the mirror, they're constantly saying harsh, negative things about themselves. If there's one thing that I want people to drop as immediately as they can, it's to end harsh self-criticism because I see it as singularly one of the most self-destructive things we do. Ready to live at the higher vibrations, where peace, love, joy, and good health are the daily standard? That's what this show is all about. Welcome to Vibe. And here's your host, Robin Openshaw. Hey everyone, it's Robin Openshaw, and welcome back to The Vibe Show. I'm going to introduce you to my amazing guest, but first, just a little word of business that I'm very excited about. We are launching what I'm very excited about. I can't remember ever being this excited about something that we're coming out with. It's called the Flash Fast, and it's a three-day package, and it has everything in it that you need to eat for three days. Everything's organic. It's plant-based. It's below the 800 calories that all the clinical evidence about modified fasting shows you need to do to achieve the same benefits if you fasted that you can actually get by eating uh, five small mini meals is what we've set the flash fast up to do. Because this modified fasting is super powerful. A lot of clinical published research shows that the health benefits um, in both animal studies and human clinical trials range from longevity animals who fasted periodically had uh, quite longer lifespans, like 20% longer lifespans, weight loss, and specifically autophagy, which means that when you don't have food coming in or enough food coming in, the body attacks abdominal fat. So very specifically, your abdominal fat stores. It's brain protective. There are benefits of rolling back the um, degenerative effects of multiple sclerosis. We really have to get autophagy into your vocabulary. And so theflashfast.com is where this product is launching. And if you took three days a month to do the flash fast, if you lost not the average, but the minimum amount of weight that our first beta testers lost, which would be three pounds, our beta testers in three days lost three to seven pounds each. So if you did that and you only lost the minimum of that, which is three pounds, and you did it once a month for a year, you would lose uh, 36 pounds in a year. And you're only focusing on it three days a month. You're doing whatever it is you're doing now for the rest of the month. I've done it twice in the last month. I've got to be at a business conference with hundreds of my colleagues in just a few weeks. And I have to be wearing some up to here and down to their dresses at a big gathering. Uh, and I want to look good. And so I've done the flash fast twice in the last month. And it's just super easy peasy lemon squeezy. I've been playing tennis and working all day, every day of the flash fast. I'll tell you that would not have happened when I was doing a water fast. I really can't work. I really can't do much out of my bed after the first day. Um, Plus I really, with the specific foods that really address cravings, the five mini meals, I've not had a hard time with cravings or with being too hungry. I've done absolutely everything that I would have done otherwise. So I'm super excited that we're finally launching this. It only costs a little over $13 a day, which is amazing. And even less if you get on 
uh, our subscribe and save program. So after you try it the first time, if you want to get on subscribe and save, it gets really cheap, which is amazing because the other modified fast program out there costs $45 a day. So to try it, you have a, a $13 a day uh, first trial and you get my brand new book. You get that for free. Everything's organic, $13.33 per day it costs. Like I said, the other modified fast program out there is not organic and it costs $45 a day. So in your package, you get five mini meals, just eat them on the schedule and you're good to go. No thinking required. So today I'm excited to introduce to you my friend, Dr. Joan Rosenberg, and she is a clinical psychologist, an author, master clinician, a media host. She's done two TEDx talks. So if you like what she has to say today, you can go check her out on uh, on YouTube, her TEDx talks. She is currently a professor of graduate psychology at Pepperdine in Los Angeles. She's also a veteran of the Air Force. And she recently released a book called 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, How to Master Your Difficult Feelings to Cultivate Lasting Confidence, Resilience, and Authenticity. Just came out in February of this year, and I've been reading it, so I'm excited to bring her to you today. So welcome to Vibe, Dr. Joan Rosenberg. Well, thank you so much, Robin. It's an honor to be with you. It's been a long time that I've been looking forward to interviewing you about your book. Um, You and I both have a real passion for, um, well, the helping professions that we both uh, come from, our academic background and careers. And the funny thing is, I maybe it was because it was like subliminally on my mind that I would be interviewing you today. I dreamed all last night that I somehow got interrupted in grad school and didn't finish. And I went back to graduate school and some of my, my former uh, classmates from when I was training in, in uh, social work and, and psychology were now my professors in my dream. So, so what does it mean? Tell me, what does it mean? Does it just mean that I'm going to, I'm going to interview Dr. Rosenberg today? <laughs> yeah. You're going to interview a colleague who's now a professor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I've been a professor for a very long time. It's, it's a decades actually for me. So. <laughs> yeah. At Pepperdine, at Pepperdine, right? Currently I'm at Pepperdine, but but I have taught two or three other places. Yeah, I taught at USC for 12 years, University of Southern California for 12 years. Uh, I was a staff psychologist at UCLA. I taught at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, and now I'm at Pepperdine University. So tell us about how you decided to become a psychologist, maybe a little about how you decided to go into the Air Force and how, why you're writing this book. What, what is it you're so passionate about that brought this body of work to the world? The, the passion really comes from very early on. I was, I, I started out in the world as a very shy, actually exquisitely shy child and really felt quite different from my peers. Started school at an early age and I think that that left me kind of both raw and vulnerable. And I would look over to, you know, to my classmates and I'd see them hanging together and have this real clear sense of belonging and laughing and appearing to be so confident. And I just felt so different and so not part of that. So I felt very alone, very raw, as I said, and, and it was like, I want what they have. And as I got older, I understood that part of what I wanted was confidence. 
and certainly the sense of belonging. And the other would be, of course, not to feel different. And, but I think a lot of us have that kind of quality of feeling different and, and also sometimes the quality of not belonging. And, and so, but that was, so that marked my early life. And that question kind of sat with me. It's like, well, how does someone develop confidence? Cause I surely didn't have it. And then as I got into my professional life, which actually started fairly early, it was at 20. And as I began to work with uh, clients, as the years went on, a second question emerged for me. And that was, what is it that makes it so difficult for people to handle unpleasant feelings? And then as the years continued, uh, I started to get the answer to both questions. And it turns out that in my mind, the answer to the second question in terms of what it takes to handle unpleasant feelings is actually for me, the answer to the first question in terms of how we develop confidence. So, so that, and then I just saw it work over and over and over again and saw how many people were coming in with a lack of confidence, people not understanding how to gain it. And it was like, I think I have something or I knew I had something that would help. And from that, the book emerged. And so you had quite an uphill fight to develop any confidence yourself. And I read that um, in the beginning of your book about how you felt very alone and shy and I actually read it and I thought of the work of, I think it's Dr. Elaine Aaron on highly sensitive people. Right. And you, you sound like as a child, you probably would have identified that way. Am I right? Uh, perhaps. I, I mean, I, I don't, I think there are others that are even more sensitive than I am. Mm-hmm. But, but yes, at that point in my life, I certainly would have described myself that way. So you had to climb out of that. And so it's like a lot of your life experience, not just your, your clinical experience that led to the book. I got that. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes, definitely. I think all the book best books are like that. It's not just someone's academic review of the literature. And here's what I do with my patients when they're sitting across from me in the chair, you know, and we're, we're going to do some therapy with them. It's also married to your own wounded healer. Of course, of course, yes. So what do you what have you concluded reviewing all the evidence that's out there in your own decades of experience as a psychologist? What does it take to develop confidence? I think of confidence first. So and the, the definition may be really important here as we kind of lead into this is confidence in my mind is the deep sense that you can handle the emotional outcome and the key here is the emotional outcome of whatever you face or whatever you pursue. So that the base for me is one's ability or one's capacity to experience and move through eight unpleasant feelings. And that's the foundation of confidence. There's much more to it, but that's the starting point. I love it. I just I just had an experience a uh, night before last with my daughter who's 23 and it's been really fascinating to watch her and my son who is 19 today, my younger son, um, in Southern California, she's his boss and they're doing summer sales and it's just a horrible job. They're knocking doors in the heat, wearing their, um, we do creepy pest control. Um, you know, what do you call those shirts that are knit? They're hot. They're hor- It's a horrible job and they get rejected all day. And, and it's his second summer and her third summer and they're, they're killing it. I mean, she's number one and he's number two in the company and, and, 
my goal for my children isn't to make their life easier. You know, you hear a lot of parents, um, the ages of you and me saying, well, I had nothing when I was growing up and I, I just want to give my children more than I was given. And I think, oh, that, that seems like a recipe for potential big backfire. What I want my kids to have is resilience and resourcefulness. And you talk a lot about that. And I, you know, this job has just kicked the crap out of both of them. And she called me two nights ago and she was just sobbing. And, you know, I listened and I listened and I listened. And, you know, she was like stringing every negative possible together in several sentences. And I said, hold on just one second. I've, I've listened for a long time and just like, give me, give me two minutes here. I'm like, I, I feel like you're horribleizing. You're taking every negative thing, like about how you take your team of 10 people in to knock on these doors and you find out that another team from the same company has been there three times and it's horrible. And you, you, then you go on to how difficult your brother has been to work with. And then, and you know, at the end of it, I said, is it possible that you're actually um, having some PMS? Is that possible? And she didn't want to answer that because you know how we are. Uh, we, we don't want to admit to PMS having to do with anything like that just almost makes us mad to be asked that. And I don't have PMS anymore. So, you know, but I can still remember how mad that question would make me because I'd be like, no, my feelings are valid. Um, but anyways, th- late last night, I got a text from her and I, and I had talked her down from quitting and, and she had said, mom, I, I sold six contracts today. I can't believe yesterday I was going to quit. And the funny thing is I've had the exact same issue with my youngest son who was like, mom, I'm going to quit. I hate this. I'm depressed. Is Does this play a factor? Like what about these like hard, hard times we have where we're out, we have a horrible job, hot sun, we want to quit every day. Nothing about it is fun or, or many other life experiences. Are these hard trials part of what leads to confidence or can we just cultivate it because we choose to? Uh, no, this is actually part of the experience. So it, it, part of the cultivation is certainly an attitude of wanting to develop it. But, but he, and, and let me walk through a couple of keys because you, you really identified a lot of different things in what you were just relating about both kids. The, the first is none of us achieve success alone in the world. And if we go into whatever it is we want to pursue with an understanding that we're going to have lots of, in quotes, failures, which I just consider learning opportunities or mistakes, and we have the mindset that we're not going to quit, then we will succeed. So the first is going into it with an attitude of this is a done deal. I'm, I'm not quitting. And because I'm not quitting, there's only one way it, that it can work out, and that is to succeed. Again, it, but it's going in also with the understanding that there isn't any one of us that hasn't met with multiple failures on that road to success. That's just the way it is. That's, that's so true. The second is none of us succeeds alone. Uh, so it's getting out of our minds that it's only independence that's going to make it work. And and in fact, it's our ability to lean on others and ask for help or to, help, in this case, your daughter's kind of staying in the game because she was talked down because she reached out to you, which is resourcefulness, then that made a difference. And so it helped her succeed and go farther. Third, <laughs> I don't think of rejection as rejection the way in the same way that most people do. So I like to language things differently, and I think it's super important because it changes our frame of reference. So I think of rejection as disappointment. So instead of her getting rejected, she got disappointed. 
then the other piece of it is that that it's understanding that most of us think that we have confidence and then we go do something or we have confidence and then we speak up but it's actually the opposite that's true and that's how confidence works so the first part be able to experience and move through in my mind eight unpleasant feelings that's the base of confidence and then speaking and acting or taking action are the next two ways you help to yourself develop confidence. So it's as you speak and through speaking, you develop confidence. And as you take action and persist, you develop confidence. So those are three, three main ways in terms of what, what makes a difference in terms of how people can develop it. Uh, I love that. I, I didn't tell the the final funny point of the story, which okay, which is not only that my daughter said, hey, mom, I sold six contracts today. She also said, oh, and I started my period. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but I want to, I want to come back to the eight unpleasant emotions because that was really useful to me in the book, even just to go, oh, there's really only eight. And I can like, you know, kind of, if I know the eight, I can be like, oh, I'm, oh, I'm feeling this one right now. And you know, you and I both talk about in our books, um, I wrote about this in Vibe, and you go into much more detail about how the average emotion only lasts 90 seconds. And, you know, one of my focuses in the book that I wrote is that if your negative emotion is lasting longer than 90 seconds, you could probably identify what you're doing to pour jet fuel on it. Like, what are you doing to stay in that repetitive cycle? But I love that you said that failures are really just learning opportunities. And I just feel like if we can get really, really clear on that one point and whether it's like make a big piece of poster board and hang it on your wall until you say it in your head every single time you have a setback or like you said, a disappointment, the more you're going to uh, be resilient because, you know, I, I'm always telling my kids, you know, like if they have a, there's three of them in college right now, if they have a paper where they have to interview somebody, they always want to interview me about my business or whatever. And I always tell them, I've had some big, huge failures. I have failed and failed and failed, if you must call them failures, like things that were supposed to make money and didn't, things I spent nine months of my life full-time working on that were a big bust that I had to just dismantle it, things like that. But I always tell them, you know, you can actually make a lot of money if you just win a little more than you lose. And if you just chalk up the things you lost on as the things, the, how you developed your chops. That's, that's what all my quote unquote failures did for me is that now I know, I know a lot more, more experienced. Right. right. I mean, that's the, what, a, that's a phenomenal attitude to hold. So it's, I mean, and that's what allows you and others like you to be successful. It's, it, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a concept in psychology called frustration tolerance. And, and I wanted to bring that point also back to your question about kids. It's like, it's crucial that children learn how to tolerate frustration, to tolerate the disappointment, the anger, and the sadness that goes into things not working out. Because, because once they're willing to experience that and stay, and stay in the game regardless, to hold that attitude of persistence and to keep going, then it makes a world of difference. And if they don't do it as kids, those are the, the adults I often see in my practice. Low frustration tolerance. I don't want to keep going. I'm afraid of failing. I'm afraid this won't work out in a relationship. It doesn't matter what it is. They want to back off and not take the risk. So true. Do you see in your clinical practice that not to keep 
um, going on the parenting thing, which isn't where I, I didn't mean to focus there. But I, I, I feel like lots and lots of parents these days want to save their children from the frustrations. And that it sounds like you're saying that would that would potentially backfire and then they're going to be on your couch getting getting long term therapy and not necessarily moving forward in their life. Is that is that an inference yeah. I can make? Yes, definitely. I, I, I don't think it's a great idea for, for I mean, obviously, you want to protect kids to a, the degree that you can, but they need opportunities to deal with loss. They need opportunities to and it happens naturally in life. You know, kids switch friends all the time, right? So, so separations, losses, uh, uh, pet dies, um, things that uh, a team that loses more than it wins, uh, not getting picked for a team. It doesn't matter what it is. There's countless opportunities for ch children to learn how to handle those kinds of disappointments and frustrations in life. And the earlier that they can learn it, and continue to and, and manage it well, not not turn against themselves because of it, but go, oh, bummer, it didn't work out. What do I, you know, what can what can I do to change that? Is there anything different I can handle, or do I just have to kind of accept what's going on? And the more they can kind of go into life that way, the more delightful, if you will, the more fun, the more interesting life becomes when they reach adulthood. It's much more. It's a much more effective way of being in the world. I agree. So tell us about tell us about the eight unpleasant emotions. Sure. As what I identified over time was that people struggled with a, really a handful of, of feelings, and and I eventually identified eight that, and and I'll come back to that in a moment. But the the eight are sadness, shame, helplessness, anger vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. And, and the most common question that comes up after I kind of talk about those eight is like, well, why isn't fear or why isn't anxiety or why not the, this or that? And, and the, the reason it's those eight, it's because they're the most common feelings or feeling states, kind of common, everyday, spontaneous reactions to things not turning out the way that we believe we need or the way we want. It's the everydayness of our reactions. Yeah, I wonder if a whole day ever goes by that any given person doesn't experience all eight of those, do you think? Yeah, they don't have to. There could be days that are, you know, decent and good and nothing, nothing upsetting happens. But but cert but certainly it's very very common to have many of these feelings run through you throughout every day. Okay, so let's talk about back up and let's talk about emotional strength, because I know you identify that as a big part of confidence too. And you talk about the base of feeling confident. Talk about any of that that you want to. I, I do. I come back to the the idea of emotional strength, and and I think in the book I describe it as redefining emotional strength. But frankly, I don't know if anybody's actually set about and find it. And, and so I, I look at emotional strength as having two major components to it. One I just talked about, and, and the first component has to do with feeling or being capable. And what I found is that somebody going out in the world didn't end up feeling capable to like live in the world and be effective in the world until they could experience and move through those eight unpleasant feelings. So think 
personal capability kind of equals I can handle those eight unpleasant feelings. The second part of it, of emotional strength for me, has to do with what I call being resourceful. And I wrestled for so long. And again, it's like, how do I position asking for help as, resource, as, as a strength? Because so many see it in a, such a negative light. I'm going to be a burden. I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to be vulnerable and do that. You know, and, and so what dawned on me is that actually, if we are able to turn to others and acknowledge our needs and limitations and ask for help, it's actually something that makes us stronger. So now the idea here is that asking for help is actually an element of emotional strength. So it's capable, the eight unpleasant feelings, acknowledging needs and limitations and asking for help. That would be being resourceful. Oh, that feels really true. I mean, I couldn't grow my business if I didn't ask for help. And of course, maybe I pay the people who help me, but the impact on my life of being able to ask for help and be specific about what I need um, not only has made my business grow, but it's also really enhanced my personal relationships when I'm able to be vulnerable and ask for help from whoever. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so it, it's, I really want people to see that as something else that contributes to feeling confident in the world. Most people think it's one or the other that we're either dependent or independent. It's actually in life, it's the experience of both elements. So the more that we can achieve a relative balance between doing the things that we can do alone and, and feel that sense of competence and confidence based on what we're doing by ourselves, plus the experience of having people be with us and support us it makes for a much better life. Okay. So I know a lot of my uh, followers talk to us about anxiety all the time. And this is a subject that you deal with a lot. How, how are some of the ways that we can handle our anxiety or we'd really just like to have less of it? What do you, what do you have to say about that? I have a, I have a whole different look at anxiety because I mean, <laughs> there's aspects of anxiety that it's like, eh, I don't really buy. Uh, and, and I think, so, so let me, let me walk through this and because anxiety in my mind is a word that's overused and misused. If I were to ask 10 people what they meant by feeling anxious or, or having anxiety or feeling stressed, I would probably get 10 different answers. So in my mind, the word is way too vague. It doesn't really tell me what's going on for you. So then I would ask, people to, it's like, all right, well, if I took that word anxiety away from you, what's really going on? And the common responses came back to the eight unpleasant feelings. And, and so what I realized is that anxiety in my mind is a cover for the eight unpleasant feelings. The first one people can consider is, are they feeling vulnerable? Because oftentimes somebody's saying, like, I, I'm, I have to talk to a friend about things, something that didn't work out and I'm anxious about it. Well, no, you're probably feeling vulnerable about it because you're concerned that, that you could get hurt or something wouldn't work out. And, th and then if something didn't work out, you'd have to experience one or more of the other seven. So the thing that people can do is to start to ask themselves, first, am I feeling vulnerable? And when I'm describing being anxious, and if, I, if I'm not that, am I experiencing one or more of the other seven feelings? And almost... I would say it's pretty high percentage where people turn around and go, mm, yep, it's one or the other 
you know, seven feelings. And, and then the, as soon as you name it accurately, the experience of the anxiety drops, just kind of dissipates. Interesting. So there's the feeling underneath the feeling and you got to get to it. And anxiety is just this broad category that isn't a very meaningful word. I, I had a professor in grad school who felt that anger was a cover-up emotion and that there was always something underneath anger. But you've, you've made it one of the eight uh, fundamental f- basic negative feelings. Right. I, di- I did. And I would, I would actually agree with the professor. I, usually there's sadness or disappointment. Under, under anger is almost always a hurt kind of a feeling. Yes. Except if I if I leave it out because it's such a common reaction, it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense to people. Yeah, because so many people are conditioned to feel anger. The family I grew up in that was the only that was the only acceptable emotion. So you could express anger unlimited, but then all the others were showing weakness, and so there's a lot of expression of anger. But you know, my experience, like you just said, is that something is underneath that where you feel. Uh, you you don't feel valued by someone else, and you, your feelings are hurt. Right, right. And there's also one other piece of the anxiety that I think, to, in my mind, is really kind of uh, poignant, and and that is that when somebody says they're anxious or they feel anxiety, if they say that to me, the other question that comes to mind is not only which one or more of the eight feelings are you trying not to experience, trying to avoid, but the second part is. Have you expressed the feeling to the people that it needs to be expressed to? And almost always it's a no. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like almost like there's a confusion element to it. And that's very much it for me. I've had lifelong anxiety. And for me, it's just feeling stressed and not at ease, not calm, peaceful, happy, loving. And so I've learned when I figure out what's really underneath the anxiety and then I address it, it really dissipates. But another thing is, and this this just goes to your point that anxiety is too broad of a term and who knows what it even means when people say it, is that sometimes it's biological. Um, you know, if I eat sugar, especially corn syrup, I'm going to have anxiety the next day. I'm going to wake up with white hot anxiety and it's going to stay with me for most of the day. And so I've just learned to not eat those foods. Um, whereas if I eat a nice alkaline diet, 60 to 80% raw, drink my green juice, my anxiety is very manageable and, and it's more like my fuel in life rather than it gets out of control and, and messes with my quality of life. Right. So we're just talking about the psychological piece of it, but you're so right. There's so many other kind of biological and, and environmental contributions. So it's, so it's, then it's, you know, we'd have to filter through all those different kinds of things, but absolutely true in terms of what you were just saying. Another really interesting thing that you really get into in the book is talking about self-criticism. And I've seen totally shocking studies of um, how when people look at themselves in the mirror uh, or in their interactions with people, they're constantly saying harsh, negative things about themselves. So I'm curious what you have to say about that because, uh, and then you also, I know, talk about the flip side of that is how we're sort of socially conditioned to not take compliments either. But I, I tell you what, it's amazing that any of us are standing given how many negative thoughts we have about ourselves. Even like on the tennis court, I'm a competitive tennis player and I hear like, I'll be playing with my tennis team or whatever, and they'll say like swear words against themselves and 
super harsh if they make a mistake and can't say I don't. Can't say I don't do that myself, but I'm like aware of it and trying to be kinder to myself. Just move through that energy and get back to the positive place. But talk about that. Talk about self-criticism and then the flip side of for some reason, it's so hard for us to accept compliments. The hard self-criticism piece is if there's one thing that I want people to do to drop and drop as immediately as they can, it's to, it's to end harsh self-criticism. And I, because I see it as singularly one of the most self-destructive things we do. The way I look at it is that harsh self-criticism is a thought hijack of unpleasant feelings. So we don't control that we feel or what we feel. We do control how and what we think to some degree. Okay, so if we're, if we're saying something negative to ourselves, like we walk past ourselves in the mirror and we go, oh, the lines on my face. I look so old today, just as an example. I think you're saying we're now putting ourselves into the negative tailspin of, of those unpleasant feelings. I guess I remember that you said they aren't negative. Let's don't call them negative feelings. I think so I should say unpleasant. They feel unpleasant. Is that what you're saying that when we allow those negative or I mean those uh, harsh self-criticisms that we are inevitably going to go into a, a uncomfortable emotion? Well, you'll you'll activate it. You'll actually make whatever you were experiencing. You'll either create something and and put yourself in that state or you'll make you'll make something you were already feeling way worse. Let me explain kind of what happened. I talk about it in the book, but again, I just think this is so crucial. I was working with a guy who was a student who was working on his dissertation and he was frustrated and he didn't handle frustration well. And he was talking about his frustration. And then all of a sudden I started to hear him talk about how he was unworthy, undeserving, and inadequate. And it was like, it was like, what, what, what is that? It's like, and how did we get from frustrated to those three words. And then it dawned on me that he's not, he couldn't be in charge of his frustration. He could be in charge of what he said to himself. It becomes kind of an equal thing. So now we want to be in control of the unpleasant feeling. So it's, it's, a, it's a, a pseudo way to, in quotes, take control of an unpleasant feeling. And it doesn't work. It's not equivalent. It actually makes things way worse. So we feel markedly worse, not the frustrated or the sad or the disappointed or the embarrassed feeling we were feeling before. Another example, I was, I was actually doing a podcast with someone else. And right before we started, th- th- there was a mistake that occurred. And then the person said, oh, God, that was, that was, I'm such an idiot. That was so stupid of me. So he went from an, a moment of embarrassment to an immediate response. I mean, it happens super quickly of such an idiot, so dumb of me, or some parallel to that. But just that quickly, there's a thought hijack of the embarrassment. So that's, that's really what I'm talking about. And so the, the thing that I want people to do is when they catch themselves saying something that's harshly self-critical, demeaning, negatively self-evaluative, whatever, however you want to position it, what I want them to do is to stop to, and to ask themselves, what, what was I experiencing just before I said that to myself so that they can go back to the feeling and allow the feeling to run through them as opposed to get in the judgment and then make it that much worse and make it last that much longer. Great. I thought for a second that you were going to say when you catch yourself um, 
with the harsh self-criticism, scold yourself harshly. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. How about about the other side of that? You you say that uh, many people push away compliments or play them down. I... I, I read about, um, gosh, what was her name? Deborah Tannen. Back in the day, I used to teach a unit on the different ways that men, male communication happens and female communication happens, especially like women among women. Remember the Deborah Tannen work and, and how women are like literally conditioned from junior high to push away any compliments and deny that they're true. What, what do you think's going on there? Uh, but you, you feel like they're important. What important to accept them? I go beyond the notion of accept. I really want people to absorb them. I want them to to feel it in their molecules. Here's here's again, and uh, and this leads into a variety of other things because many times I'll watch somebody who is harshly self-critical and doesn't accept compliments. It doesn't that puts people in a bind. There's no way for them to feel good about themselves. So the thing with compliments is that. Uh, they don't come out of thin air. They don't come out of the blue. They're not coming out of a vacuum. What ends up happening is that a compliment occurs when somebody has an experience of you or an experience with you. So they're actually based in reality. And when you don't accept them, not only do you dismiss the other person's reality of you, you dismiss your own reality. You dismiss the truth of who you are. So let's say you're really good at something and, you, and it's, oh, no, no, it was just luck or it gets played down or whatever it is, but you worked your butt off to get to whatever that point was. Then it, what, it, what ends up happening is that you never have a chance to update your self-image. So for me, the whole notion of compliments is that they're a reflection of you back to you and the purpose is to help you update your sense of self or your self-image we don't allow them in we never really get to fully update if you will to whatever that next level for ourselves is Mm, i love that i used to i used to ask my university students um when i was doing this unit on how women communicate with each other and how men communicate with each other and then how, what research shows about how, you know, a mixed group communicates. And I, for the sake of the women in the class, which is kind of the opposite of my Green Smoothie Girl audience, my, um, when I was faculty at Brigham Young University's Marriott School of Management, it was like the opposite. It was like 85% men, 15% women. And I would say, hey guys, uh, by a show of hands, do you like it when you give a girl a compliment and you say, your eyes look so beautiful today, or let's try a different one. Um, you look so good in that dress. And she says, oh no, I've got to lose 10 pounds. I said, do you like, do you enjoy giving compliments to that girl? And they would just like erupt and they had things to say. They wouldn't just like raise their hands quietly. They, they wanted the 15% of women in the class to know that they just wish that they would accept the compliment. You know, it's deflating for the person who gives the compliment to receive that. Plus, that was in seventh grade. That was seventh grade girls where we weren't allowed to accept a compliment. We would give each other one and we weren't allowed to go, yeah, thanks. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I've been trying to train myself in recent years too. If someone says, your backhand is amazing. And then I say, thank you. Instead of being like, well, some days, that's what, that's what my tennis team will do. These are women in their fifties, you know, and they'll say, they'll say, well, if I'm lucky, well, on a good day, you know, like kind of 
put yourself down and and that's probably like the nicest thing we do with a compliment but um, practicing saying thank you and then just leaving it at that so I would practice right. that and that's a perfect starting point for it is it just say thank you mm-hmm. and then if you really want to learn something from it take that and go all right what and, and you're not one that we used to, was used to taking in compliments then then you know walk away and go all right if I really took that in, if I really allowed myself to experience that, what would that mean to me? What, what would it mean to me that people saw me that way or that that was actually the real me? That's so good. You know how you and I met through uh, the Mindshare organization where lots and lots of health and wellness influencers all over the internet, some of us are bloggers, podcasters, um, social media mavens, and we all we all get together and you and I met there. And there's a contest every year called the Insanity Awards. And we we submit like the meanest, craziest thing someone has said to us. Because if you have a big public platform, there's people who say right. really awful things to you. And this is making me think, Joan, that you and I should should put forward a contest where the most amazing thing someone has said to us so we can help each other. I mean, because we do we just do that. The Insanity Awards is for laughs. And, and I've had awful things said about me. And I've won that contest with hundreds and hundreds of our colleagues. I've won it because because the thing that was said to me was, was either that laughable or, um, or that awful that, that like our colleagues couldn't believe anyone would actually say that but they did and I showed it with screenshots. And um, in fact, I think one year I was like the winner and the runner up at the same, like the two. <laughs> so, but I think we should be putting up there the positive things because what's crazy and maybe you could tell, tell us why is that I could have people say a hundred things to me online about how my work has changed their life or benefited their life and how grateful they are. Very specific things. And people are amazing. And they tell me in a very detailed way what how their life has been made better by my body of work. And then one person will say something about me personally that's mean. And that's the thing that stays in my head. There's a there's a phrase in psychology called a negative a negativity bias. And the and the part of the reason we have that and we pay attention to the negative more is because it, it, there's a it actually is a it helps us with survival. So that we do have a negativity bias to protect ourselves. But if we only pay attention to that, then again, it's not realistic because there's many positive things that we experience as well. So, so it's, it's understanding that there's a, there, a paying attention to the negative or holding on to the negative is tied into kind of the survival protective nature that we have and that it becomes important to kind of override that so that we live a more genuine and full life and happier one. Okay, so when when the lady wrote to me and said, Robin, I love all the things you've taught me about nutrition and being healthy and well, but you know what? Your hair is ratty and it really you really need to change your stylus and you need to get some conditioner, honey. It Because I focused on that because it was negative, it helped me stop bleaching my hair so much and get a new conditioner, but then move on to the positive. So it, it helped me in a way is I think what you're saying. So so in that regard, then if there's some kind of negative thing, and I, I talk a lot about intent here too, Robin, because my thing is I want people to be positive, kind, and well-intentioned. Right. So if somebody's just going to offer something and, and it's coming from an ill-intentioned place, then it's not clean. I just don't have a better word for it. It's not. It's not productive. It's not clean. It's not. It's not kind of welcoming our shared humanity. 
if somebody offers something to you and it's well-intended and sometimes even if it's ill-intended the thing that we can do with with the negative stuff that we hear is to go all right is there something of value here that i can learn from and if there's not move on right and if there is that as you did then take take the piece that you can learn from and then move on let it go and go all right i took what i needed from that and and i can drop it and i can stay focused on the more positive elements that's perfect and I think that we can all get in the habit of asking ourselves, if we're going to say something critical, um, ask ourselves, do I have a clean motive here? So I love that you brought up, you know, clean clean and dirty motives. And I think it doesn't make us a bad person if we sometimes have dirty motives, but I think we become a more authentic person the more we check our motives and use our filters. Don't say it. Right. Don't right. say it and don't let it in if it's not, if it didn't come from a clean motive and you, or if you don't have a clean motive. Okay. One more thing before we go. I know that you, and this was a challenge for you coming into this world, very, very shy person, but you feel really strongly that speaking up and being assertive isn't counter to, you know, female culture. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't make you some negative word. Speaking up, being assertive, you say makes us more authentic and genuine with others. It can actually be a relationship builder, right? Tell us more. Beyond our capacity to handle and or experience and move through those eight unpleasant feelings, our capacity or our ability to speak up and to say what we want to say to the people we want to say it to when we want to say it. And again, with the caveat of it being positive, kind and well-intentioned, even if we're angry and upset is singularly the most important thing that we can do for ourselves. And how did you learn to do it? What are, what are ways that you can speak up and be authentic and be assertive? Um, even if it's scary and you don't necessarily have a really uh, innately assertive personality. Well, it's again, it's understanding for, and this is, this is why it's linked in with this idea of the eight feelings. It's understanding the reason we don't speak up is because we don't want to experience the discomfort of our own emotional discomfort. If we don't want to do that, we'll never even start. So think eight unpleasant feelings when I talk about emotional discomfort, but a conversation means I have to be in uh, be able to experience the discomfort of my own emotional discomfort, the eight unpleasant feelings, and the discomfort of your emotional discomfort simultaneously. Think the same eight unpleasant feelings. So what it takes to be in conversation, whether it's a conversation that says, I'm angry and disappointed with you, or a conversation that says, boss, I'd like a raise, or a conversation that says, hey, I really like you. I'd love to spend more time with you. Doesn't matter what the nature of it is. Means that you have to be able to be present to those same eight feelings in order to be in the conversation. So difficulty speaking up is not a speaking problem. Difficulty speaking up is a difficulty feeling unpleasant feeling problem. And when we can do that, many things happen. When we start to speak up a lot more, sometimes we're surprised by what we say and it goes, oh, I didn't realize I believed that. And so we come to know ourselves better when we speak up. When we share our story, we get well more well-connected to others. When we're willing to take risks to ask for things, 
we don't even know the possibilities or the opportunities that might come to us because we put ourselves out there. But when we speak, things become more real to us. And when we, when we speak and we're telling the truth of who we are, we live a much more authentic and genuine life and our connections with others deepen and more opportunities come to us. So singularly, the most important thing for someone to do. That was so powerfully put. And I think that we should all support Dr. Joan Rosenberg by picking up her book. It's quite lovely. It's about her own personal experience as well as her clinical experience in decades of um, uh, practice as a psychologist, psychotherapist. And we should all immerse ourselves in some awareness about these eight unpleasant emotions that we experience very regularly. It's just part of the human experience. But what if you could experience them less often? What if you could move through them with grace? That's what the book is all about. It's 90 seconds to a life you love, how to master your difficult feelings to cultivate lasting confidence, resilience, and authenticity by Dr. Joan Rosenberg. And where else can they find you? What other resources are out there for people who want to learn more from you? If they go to drjoanrosenberg.com, actually, they can also get a gift. So if they put a, a slash and then a gift there, they can get a, a, a couple different downloads uh, for people to use. They, so my website, I will be setting up an online training and also doing some live training. So it's just a matter of people contacting me through my website for that. I've also done two TEDx talks. So if they want to go onto YouTube and find those TEDx talks, all they have to do is punch in my name. And there's, there's different interviews that I've also done. So there's a lot of resources. There's a, on Facebook, I'm on, on all the, the four major kind of uh, social media areas. So they can be in contact with me there. There's a Love My Life Facebook group. And uh, so it's, uh, there's lots of resources available for people. Wonderful. So we will have it in the show notes. It's drjoanrosenberg.com slash gift. And Rosenberg is spelled B-E-R-G at the end, everyone. So um, I'm excited to hear your feedback after you read her book. I think sometimes when we spend six or eight hours reading a book and we really immerse in one subject, we have like this one powerful takeaway that changes our life. And I've had that experience with many books, including yours. So thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a total delight. I'm so honored. And I just want you to know how much I appreciate the work that you also do in the world. So just a huge thank you. 